Hello, welcome to the LifeBridge podcast. We exist to practice the way of Jesus, participating in God's kingdom coming in Dover as it is in heaven. My name is Tyler Saldana and I'm the pastor of our church community. We are so grateful that you're checking out our church's podcast. We pray that the Spirit uses this podcast to encourage you in your following of Jesus. Okay, so we're in part five of what is now a six-part series, because last week, if you weren't here, my message got deleted on the morning of. So we have condensed it into uh, six weeks instead of seven. Uh, But to remind us so far of where we've been, part one, we just saw that Peter's call predominantly is for us to remember. Uh, Remember what? Well, in part two, it was remember our living hope in Jesus. Remember that we have a living hope because Jesus not only died, he didn't stay dead, but he resurrected. He is alive, and therefore our hope is in someone, a God who is alive. In part three, Peter challenges us to remember who we are now in Jesus, our identity, that that's now changed in light of that living hope. And lastly, two weeks ago, Peter called us to remember our conduct in Jesus, that we are to live differently. And so this morning's large portion of Scripture covers quite a few topics, and, it, and it's kind of odd, and uh, even the commentators that I sat through the last two weeks now um, are a little puzzled by some of the things in here, so we'll try and work our way through them. But I want us to see before we jump in, let's see Peter's thought process so far with the letter for us. The living hope we have in the, in the resurrected Jesus Christ changes who we are, which changes how we live, and this is going to cause trouble for us. So, make sure we have a clear perspective of life in Jesus, or a new vantage point, a new outlook. And that's what today's passage is predominantly about. Remembering our perspective now in Jesus. Remembering our outlook on life, our vantage point now, as people who are crucified to our flesh, but alive in Christ. We have a new outlook on life. We see through different eyes. We feel feelings through a new heart. We think through a new mind. So, to not look at the world, to not look at the world the way the world sees it, and the way the world sees life, but to see through the hollow strongholds and false gods that culture, even even sometimes Christian culture, worships and places their hope in, and that they build their life upon. We are to seek to see our life through the lens of Jesus. And so specifically, we're looking at three things, our present sufferings, our past mistakes, and our future hope. So let's look at the first point. Remember our perspective of suffering. We're going to jump around the passage a little bit this morning, but we're going to start at 3 verse 13. But what has Peter said so far in regards to suffering? In chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, if you recall, Peter said, in this you rejoice, in your living hope you rejoice, Even if now, for a little while, you've had to suffer various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold, that, though perishable, is tested by fire, and may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. That's what we've heard so far from Peter about about suffering in particular, that it, it is not pointless suffering for following the way of Jesus. And I do want to make that clear up front. This is not just any suffering. This is specifically talking of suffering 
for following the way of Jesus, for obey. Not suffering because of something we ourselves did and, and reaped consequences or disciplines or anything like that. That's not what Peter's talking about here. There's actually not as much spoken about that in the New Testament as, uh, as so much so being suffering in light of following and honoring the way of Jesus in the face of opposition. And that's what this is about. And what does the world do with suffering, in particular a secular atheistic worldview? Uh, Richard Dawkins, if you're unfamiliar, is a, uh, well, he's a biologist. And uh, here's his outlook on suffering in, in a concise paragraph. The total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. During the minute that it takes me to compose this sentence, thousands of animals are being eaten alive. Many others are running for their lives, whimpering with fear. Others are slowly being devoured from within by rasping parasites. Thousands of all kinds are dying of starvation, thirst, and disease. It must be so. If there ever is a time of plenty, this very fact will automatically lead to an increase in the population until the natural state of starvation and misery is restored. Therefore, in a, in a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at the bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. You see, suffering without our living hope is meaningless. It really is, because there is no hope, right? So then what's the point of it? It makes sense to me why people would, have, uh, would struggle with mental health issues, that they would contemplate dying by suicide, that they would question why we endure such difficult things if this is it, what's the point of it? I didn't do anything to deserve this. Or maybe I did, but so what? It was a mistake. Or something in between. But that's from an atheistic, secular point of view. That suffering ultimately, and justice in and of itself, without any root, is pointless. That social justice on its own is pointless. There's gospel social justice. That's what we are called to. And so, we are to see suffering differently. There are two different sections in this morning's passage, so let's start in verse 13, and we'll walk through, through a little. So, starting in verse 13, Peter asks, Now, who will harm you if you are eager to do what is good? He's asking this rhetorical question. You know, there's a lot of common good in most cultures. Most people can, can agree on some common things that are good, whether it be taking care of the needy or providing uh, meals and, and clothes for the houseless, anything of that sort. We, we can agree on that, taking care of widows and orphans or, or things of that sort. Those are not just um, exclusive to the Christian worldview, although I do think the Christian worldview is the exclusive, uh, has the exclusive source for living and embodying that ethic. So, that's the common question. And why is that? There's this common good. Why is there even a common good? Why do we agree generally on terms like good and evil and, and so on? 
uh, because we've talked about this before. We're all made in God's image, and while that image has been broken, we still all reflect in some ways broken fragments of that image. And thus, even the most atheistic, uh, nihilistic person with that said worldview still can have some attributes of good because they still resemble some attributes of the image of God. It's just broken. It's distorted. It's different. It's a broken reflection. If you recall the mirror illustration, that we are called to be that mirror reflection of Jesus, and when sin happened, we took a hammer to the mirror. We still see some of the fragments. It's broken, though. The reflection's messed up. We keep going. Verse 14, But even if you do suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear, and do not be intimidated. Don't fear. Don't, don't revere. Remember, this term is all throughout the, the Old Testament in particular, that the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge, or the fear of the Lord. We are to fear God in a reverent way, not in a, I'm afraid he's going to hurt me way, but in a holy, oh my gosh, he's other, he's something, so, woe is me, I, 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 I don't deserve to be in this presence. There's a reverence there. The opposite, therefore, from Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So therefore, the opposite is a lack of wisdom, right? When we don't fear God, when we fear other things, as Peter is pointing out here, don't fear what they fear. That's why there is a lack of wisdom. That's why the outlet of their worship is wrong. And sometimes that's ours, too, because we're still recovering from that distorted, broken image. They don't have a clear perspective. He keeps going in verse 15. But in your heart, sanctify Christ as Lord. That means set apart Jesus as Lord. Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. See, this passage, if we've heard it before, it's often used to, to justify like and encourage us, hey, let's have like a four-point gospel presentation to tell anyone on the street or at the grocery store or hand a tract to or something like that. Um, which is kind of the furthest from the New Testament way of spreading the gospel. Um, that's, that's not what he's actually talking here. What, what is, notice the object of investigation here. He's saying, be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands what? From you in accounting for what? The hope that is in you. How do you have so much hope? The world's falling apart. The world seemingly is, is so difficult, and it is. How, what is your hope? It's not like, hey, outline these four-point theological steps of, of the gospel. No, it's, I want to know, how do you, how does this keep you going? What is your hope? How has this affected you here and now? So it's not so much just preparing this articulate, fine-tuned gospel presentation, but it's, it's literally being able to share why am I different now? What changed? How, why do I use my stuff differently? Why do I love people differently? Why do I sacrifice differently? Why do I live differently? Why do I have different priorities than others? The message version says, be ready to speak up and tell anyone who asks why you're living the way you are. And always with utmost courtesy. Not with those signs that are 
just very vitriol and vile and judgmental. No, with the utmost courtesy. Keep a clear conscience before God, the message continues, so that when people throw mud at you, none of it will stick. They'll end up realizing that they're the ones who need a bath. That though, even though we are being scrutinized, we are being, uh, a scalpel is placed to us from culture, if we continue to follow the way of Jesus, if we continue to honor him with our life, and we continue to share the hope that we have, the hope is that ultimately, the Spirit would help them see that it's not us who has uh, the problem because we're no longer defined by who we are. Now we're defined by our living hope in Jesus. Uh, First Peter scholar Karen H. Jobes, she wrote, Baseless slander will ultimately be shown to be untrue, and the believer's loving attitude shows the opponent's attitude toward the Christian to be wrong. In the end, we have, uh, we will, our name will not be slandered. And the, and the point being, it's not about our name. We're no longer simply Tyler Saldana or whatever your name is. We are first and foremost follower of Jesus, son or daughter of God. Keep going in verse 17. It says, for it is better to suffer for doing good if suffering should be good, uh, should be God's will, than to suffer for doing evil. Even though God doesn't outright desire us to suffer, if he calls us to that, if that is part of his plan, we are to suffer well. And again, this is suffering for, in, in following the way of Jesus. This is not suffering because I did something wrong. I messed up. That's a different suffering that Peter's not really discussing here. This is opposition we are facing in light of our followership of Jesus. Keep going in verse 18. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. But there's this death to the powers of this realm in Jesus' death. And now that he's alive in the spirit, we too are being restored to a new way of being human. That image, that cracked mirror, that shattered mirror is being put back together in Christ. It has been inaugurated in Jesus' death and resurrection. And then jump over to 12. While, while suffering is somewhat laced throughout this whole chunk, and that's why we took this giant chunk of passage, jump over to 412. He continues regarding suffering. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is taking place among you to test you as if something strange were happening to you. Don't, don't think that God's absent when this is happening to you. That when you're enduring persecution or, or you're being outcasted or being mocked or anything of that sort, our... our our default, we see this written throughout the Psalms, is where are you, God? Now he's reminding us, don't, don't think that God is absent. He's here, he's in it, Jesus was in it, and he, he's able to identify and sympathize within it, with us in it, because he too endured it, and endured it so much more, and he conquered it so much more than we could ever. 
You keep going in verse 13. He says, but rejoice insofar as you sharing, uh, as you are sharing Christ's sufferings so that you may also be glad and shout for joy when his glory is revealed. When suffering for Jesus, it's this refining process. It's that illustration that Peter said in, in chapter 1. That gold is purified, it's refined through very hot fire. And just as that, that is our faith too. That if God so wills us to endure persecution to whatever extent, uh, then so be it. And it's seeing in the greater perspective that this is the means by which our faith, our followership, our, our, our finding ourself in Jesus is being refined Charles Dickens wrote, Suffering has been stronger than all other teaching and has taught me to understand what your heart used to be. I have been bent and broken, but I hope into a better shape. And so Peter says, Rejoice. That's pretty hard to be like, Rejoice in the midst of suffering. Because I think of the ministry workers that are still kidnapped right now, still being held. And I think Peter's saying rejoice. Because I can't fathom that. I haven't endured anything like this. But the people that Peter is writing to have, have had to face, or their family members or loved ones or people in their community, have had to endure things of this sort. And Peter says rejoice. Jesus said in John 15, starting in verse 18, he said, If the world hates you, be aware that it hated me before it hated you. If you belong to the world, the world would love you as its own. You'd fit right in to your community. Because you do not belong to the world, I have chosen you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word, the word that I said to you. Servants are no greater than their master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But, but they will do all these things to you on the account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Jesus also said in Luke's gospel, uh, chapter 6, verse 22, Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they revile you and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. Rejoice. Let's keep going. Verse 14. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory, which is the spirit of God, is resting on you. Followers of Jesus are to be prepared to follow Jesus into this, even to the point of death. We know that even just the early church endured much death for the sake of the name of Jesus. We know that in the last century, more Christians have been killed than all the previous 19th centuries. If we are following Jesus, a man, a God-man who died, we ought to be prepared to do as so. Are we prepared? That's pretty intense. I laugh nervously because that's intense. I don't know that 
that is something in our own will that we could honestly take up. I think that is a spirit-empowered uh, response in the face of persecution. I don't know, if we're honest, that we could do that in our own will and flesh. I think if we are able to respond as such, that is the spirit having uh, reconstructed the mirror to be pretty close to what we were in Jesus, or what we are now in Jesus. And then verse 15 through 18. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, a criminal, or even a mischief maker. Yet if any of you suffers as a Christian, do not consider it a disgrace, but glorify God because you bear this name. For the times come for judgment to begin with the household of God. If it begins with us, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And quote, if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinners? Note that it's not so much suffering when we have done wrong. That's, that's typically more what he's referring to here is we may think of it as suffering. Why is this happening to me? But it's in light of it is a correction. It's more of a punishment, a discipline, even a judgment sometimes. Suffering, on the other hand, as a Jesus follower, is just that, suffering as a result of following the way of Jesus. C.S. Lewis said in, I believe it was the problem of pain, oh no, a grief observed, we were promised sufferings. They were part of the program. I just read them to you, a couple of them. We were even told, blessed are they that mourn, and I accept it. I've got nothing that I hadn't bargained for. Of course it is different when the things happen to oneself, not to others, and in reality, not in imagination. I say this fairly easily up here, having never endured what Peter is having uh, to address to his audience here. And perhaps a lot of us have not had to endure suffering in the face of uh, hostility towards our God. I think we're familiar with the local ministry workers and them having been uh, kidnapped. Today is the 30th day, I believe. I did want to read from their website uh, the post that was written on day six. They released, Dear Church of Christ around the world, thank you for your prayers on behalf of our family members who are being held hostage in Haiti. God has given our, lo our loved ones the unique opportunity to live out our Lord's command to, quote, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you. God invites us to call upon his name in the day of trouble. We thank him that he is God and ask him to hear our prayers and bring our families home. But we also pray that the light of God's love might shine out into the darkness of sin and that the gang members might be freed from their bondage to sin and experience freedom in Jesus Christ. Thank you, brothers and sisters in Christ, and please keep praying, the families of the hostages. I don't know how you craft a letter like that when, you're, when you're, you don't know that you're going to see your loved one again. And not for even what could be 
in our human perspective, a justifiable reason. They got kidnapped for going to build houses and to serve in, in numerous ways underprivileged people who have endured yet another natural disaster. That sounds like the Spirit of God writing through them or giving them that faith, that boldness to do so. Let's move on to point two. Remember our, our perspective of our past. Now, starting in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, well, what does the world have to say about the power of our past? Uh, Cormac McCarthy, if you've read, he's a novelist. He wrote, scars have the strange power to remind us that our past is real. Wendell Berry wrote that the past is our definition. We may strive with good reason to escape it or to escape what is bad in it, but we will escape it only by adding something better to it. Now, Wendell Berry is a Christian, and I think that last line is uh, the gospel coming through. Because without the but we will escape it only by adding something better to it, uh, that's a world without Jesus. We look at 4 verse 1. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same intention, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has finished with sin so as to live for the rest of your earthly life, no longer by human desires, but by the will of God. So, Peter's saying, in light of this reality, this new perspective of suffering to obedience to the way of Jesus, arm yourselves. He uses a military term here. For us Anabaptists, that's an interesting, ironic term for us. But he's not saying arm yourself with a weapon of swords and guns, no, but with a mindset with a mindset, a perspective shift, a totally different way of seeing what a true weapon of war is, of spiritual warfare. Have the same resolve of Jesus that we too may live in light of his victory. So he's calling us to suffer in light of following rather than suffering out of fear of others, suffering to sin really. So suffer for falling rather than sin out of fear. In the message version, I like the way it's paraphrased. He says, since Jesus went through everything you're going through and more, learn to think like him. Think of your sufferings as a weaning from that old sinful habit of, of always expecting to get your own way. Then you'll be able to live out your days free to pursue what God wants instead of being tyrannized by what you want. There is this deeper joy and peace that, that is available to us in being in right standing with God rather than people than seeking that, making that our chief aim, making that our home, our hiding place. More and more in a like space, social validation society, we're, we're actually being trained to live the opposite, right? That we live more and more for people. Every time we scroll through Instagram or Facebook, every time we feel the need to post and to look at the notifications or things of that sort, it is social validation. It is literally rewiring our brain. We know this matter-of-factly 
It is giving us dopamine hits every time we see a number pop up for a, no a notification similar to that as a moderate drug. We know this. It's undeniable. It is rewiring. And so we, when we are in a culture of that, when we are in a lifestyle of that, we are being called to do the exact opposite. No, to seek that validation, that peace, that affirmation in who we are in Jesus, not this former way of life. The way of Jesus is not to ask, what do my friends think? What does my political party think? Instead, it's to ask, what does God think? What would Jesus do in this? Would Jesus do that? The way of Jesus is less the easy way, the way that makes sense, the way that the crowd you so easily identify with is going. It's different than both secular atheism and even popular Christianity. Don't be deceived and, and don't naively fall in line. Jesus told us that narrow is the way to life. Wide is the way to the gates of hell. The way of Jesus is a different way. He even warns that many will say, Lord, Lord, didn't I call on your name? Many, a lot, will think they are on his way, that they are on his path. This is written throughout the Gospels. So even in the way of Jesus, we sometimes are called to not just criticize and, and, and take the scalpel to secular atheism, but to even popular Christianity. Is this in line with the way of Jesus? Or is this what in this day, with the New Testament, there's a term called syncretism. And the book of Acts is filled with every time they go into a new community, the gospel, uh, the, the apostles, where they're coming and preaching the gospel for the first time and planning a church, they are addressing uh, people with a totally different worldview. That's a little easier. But eventually, when the epistles start happening, most of the follow-up that Paul had to do, where he asked Galatia, what happened? How did you fall back so easily? Or, or Corinth, what's going on? Like, I thought we were on the same page, and now you guys are doing this and letting this go down? That's called syncretism. You're syncing gospel worldview with your culture around you. They started to look a lot like Corinth again, rather than Christians. So that's where even that, Jesus' warning is written, the, the apostles' warning is written throughout the, Old, uh, the New Testament. We take a scalpel to both. It's, it's, it's easy to take the scalpel to secular atheism. It's a little harder for us to take honest scalpel reflection to the worldview. We tend to be a little more or less home in the family reunion, maybe distant cousins sometimes, I don't know. But anyways, don't be deceived. The way of Jesus is a different way. Our leader is a different president. Our resistance is a different method. Our self-defense is different weapons. Our fight is a different war. Our kingdom is a different kingdom. And our citizenship is a different country. Verse 3, you have already spent enough time in doing what the Gentiles like to do. This is, again, he's addressing the syncretism. You've already done this. Don't go back into it. Living in licentiousness, passions, drunkenness, revels, carousing, and lawless idolatry. He says you've lived it up quote-unquote. You've had the influencer lifestyle. You've had the posh, get to go to all the parties. You, you, you've, been, you've tasted and seen the world, and, and you've seen that it's not good. It, it's not all it's hyped up to be. 
And now, just for us, this is a very sexually immoral and broken culture. We think that today is? No, this, this is crazy, first century. We're just like introduction 101 on some sexual brokenness in the 21st century in America and in the Western culture. First century had some weird, wrong, twisted stuff. And if you'd like to know more about that, it, it's part of the conversation as to talking through sexual ethics. And I, I would resource you that way, but we don't have time. If, if you'd like to learn more about that, you can. But it's important for understanding the context that we're speaking here. These people are in this. They were in that. Craig Keener, New Testament uh, scholar. He's a, he's a first century scholar. He, he's a historian primarily in his, in his uh, theology uh, work brought up how sexually broken that, that likely men were seeking uh, relations with, yes, many different types of women, slave women, all this, and young boys. That was a very common practice in that day for grown men to have relationships with young boys. Just common. That was just what a, and there was no straight or homosexual. There was no gender identity type stuff. There were no, these, these categories are newer recent phenomenons, sociologically speaking. No, the, the, the categories were different, and they were much, um, I, arguably, I would, I would say perverse than what we potentially are trying to sort out and figure out how we, in Jesus, love and serve others today. And the message says you've already put in your time in that God-ignorant way of life, partying night after night, a drunken and profligate life. Now it's time to be done with it for good. Of course your old friends don't understand why you don't join in with the old gang anymore, but you don't have to give an account to them. They're the ones who will be called on the carpet and before God himself. So therefore for us, turn, repent. That's what that term means. That term means re- repent. We're going a different way. We're not going, remember the illustration, we're not taking a different route to get to the same end, end, end destination point. No, the address you're typing into maps or whatever you use is a different end point. The road is narrower. It's different. Saying turn. It was so different then that Nero referred to Christians as haters of humanity. They were thought of as antisocial because they withdrew so much from certain um, practices. They were thought of as odd. Keep going in verse 4. It says, They are surprised that you no longer join them in the same excesses of dissipation, and so they blaspheme. Man, are people surprised with us, LifeBridge? Do people look at our lives and they're like, oh, they're different now. Continue in verse 5, but they will have to give an accounting to him who stands ready to judge the living and the dead, for this is the reason the gospel was proclaimed even to the dead, so that though they had been judged in the flesh as everyone is judged, they might live in the spirit as God does. They'll give their own account, but for us who are in Christ, Jesus is ours. Hebrews 7.25 says, consequently, he is able for all time to save those who approach God through him. Since why? He always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is resurrected in our place right now, interceding on our behalf for us who are in Christ. We are no longer seen as our former self if we're in Christ. 
our chief identity is remade in Jesus. Now, verse 6, I do want to say that there's two interesting, odd passages, and we're, we're just not going to be able to unpack them, but I, I don't want to pretend I didn't see it. Verse 6 is odd. Just going to own it. Um, we don't totally understand it. We think it's a quote from an extra-biblical uh, text, potentially the Wisdom of Solomon, which is um, in the Apocrypha, and uh, Roman Catholics, I believe, use that as a, they believe that is an inspired Old Testament book, and I believe Eastern Orthodox as well, Christians. Um, but yeah, we, we really don't totally understand, and we're going to come back to what that meant in the last points. But I do want to say this, your past doesn't define you anymore. Paul in Colossians 3 says a similar thing, starting in verse 1. He says, since then, that you have been raised with Christ, since you have a living hope. Very similar message that Paul is giving to Colossae, that Peter is giving to the churches in the diaspora. He says, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly uh, nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. And here's the key verse. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived. You see, Jesus didn't die just to save you, but he died to change you here and now, to give you newness of life. We kind of use it, so there's a popular Western gospel out there that Jesus died and saved, okay, well, I'm forgiven, and it's kind of this get-out-of-jail-free card, this cop-out. Um, no, Paul addresses this all throughout Romans. That, that's not believing and understanding the gospel. And when we get the gospel, we, we understand then to be changed, to live differently, that we, we have new freedom. When we really understand God's love, we want to live differently. Our desires are changed. Paul concludes, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, Slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices. Again, since you have taken off like clothes, taken them off. You're not even wearing that anymore. That's, that's not part of your outfit anymore of your life. You have put on Christ. You are not defined by your past. We are not defined by who we are were when we were in Christ. And praise God for that. Last point, remember our perspective in light of the end. Remember our perspective in light of the end. Um, I'm going to address the weird, the, the interesting passage here real quick. And I'm just going to tell you what I don't know and own it. Um, starting in verse 18. It says, Christ suffered for sins once for all the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And here's where it gets kind of interesting, and we, we don't know what to do with this. There's not a consensus. In which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison. 
who in former times did not obey God when God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were saved through water. And baptism, which this prefigured, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus, who has gone into heaven at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers made subjective to him. Basically, I'm just the three options we have for the Jesus made his appeal in the days of Noah um, to the spirits in prison. There's three options, and we've got them on the screen. Uh, and they all are divided, the thought, historically, theologically speaking. Um, they are divided based on different time periods. So the first thought, and it's in the Apostles' Creed, is that Jesus descended into hell, and he preached the gospel there. The church fathers believe that. Uh, the reformers believe that Jesus actually literally manifested through Noah and spoke through Noah uh, when Noah was saying, repent. Um, and then modern scholars believe that after the resurrection, Jesus went to fallen angels and proclaimed his victory over them and Satan's army. Um, honestly, based on the commentators who are much more knowledgeable and, and, and uh, wiser than I am, weren't able to come to anything of, why this is even valuable to us. It's believed that he's commenting potentially on a, on a first century worldview, but sometimes there's things like this in scripture where we only have, like we said, the right side of the I message. We don't know what was being talked about over here. So because of that, we can just infer, but I, um, we're just going to move on from that. But that's, that's all I got for you. I'm sorry about that, but I didn't want to pretend like that wasn't there. Um, the last part being, so remembering our perspective in light of the end. 7 through 11, Peter concludes, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be serious and discipline yourselves for the sake of your prayers. When scriptures say this, um, it's not literally speaking of a time, like, hey, it's near, it, it's coming. It, it just means it's the next thing in redemptive history. Because we're probably wondering, hey, this is almost 2,000 years ago. How, what does near mean? That's not what that actually means in, this, in these types of writings in the first century. It more means that in redemptive history, the end is next. But so, because of that, he's saying be serious. Discipline yourselves for the sake of your prayers. Practice the way of Jesus. belief of our future determines and affects, influences the way we see today. And so Peter is saying the culmination, the end of all things is coming. Gear up. Gear up. How he said, arm yourself. Think like Jesus. How does he say to do this? Well, he says in verse 8, above all maintain constant love for one another. For love covers a multitude of sins. How do we love? Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Like good stewards of the manifold grace of God, serve one another with whatever gifts, uh, gifts each of you has received. He gives examples. Whoever speaks, do so as one speaking the very words of God. Whoever serves, do so with the strength that God supplies so that God may be glorified in all things through Jesus. Basically, he's saying, similar to Paul in Colossians, whatever you do, whether eat or drink, whether you clean the church, whether you clean your home, whether you clean toilets somewhere, 
whether you are a doctor, whether you are a nurse, whether you are a teacher, whether you are a truck driver, what, what, whatever you are, whether you are a parent, a spouse, whether you are a neighbor, do it all as unto Christ. When you see that person that you are serving and relating to, do it as though you are seeing Jesus. Treat them as the hopeful, potential, remade image bearer of Jesus. See the hope that Jesus, that the Spirit may give them new life. I'm going to close with a, a couple N.T. Wright quotes because, well, you know I do that by now, I think. Um, he said, the first one, once again, Peter is treading a fine line. He's not glorifying suffering for its own sake. He's not saying you should go looking for it, but just as the crucifixion of the Messiah was at the same time the most wicked thing humans ever did and most powerfully loving thing God ever did, so the wickedness of those who persecute God's people forms a strange frame within which the power of God's transforming love can shine through all the more strongly. And so he says, Jesus' resurrection then is the beginning of God's new project, not to snatch people away from earth to heaven, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. That, after all, is what the Lord's Prayer is about. May your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, in Dover, in Philly, in Strasbourg, and so on, as it is in heaven. Not take me away. So, he says, what you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself, will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable, making the temperature in the room a little more comfortable. No, it's until the day when we, when we leave it behind altogether. They are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. Now, we don't build God's kingdom. God is building his kingdom, but we build for the kingdom. We see what God's doing, and we get on board with it. We see how he's already working in and through our community, in and through his church, and we get on board with it. Lastly, he said, salvation then is not going to heaven, but being raised to life in God's new heaven and new earth. But as soon as we put it like this, we realize that the New Testament is full of hints, indications, and downright assertions that this salvation isn't just something we have to wait for in the long distance future, we can enjoy it here and now. Always partially, of course, since we still, have, we still have to die. But genuinely anticipating in the present what is to come in the future. We see the Old Testament, right? And, and as Christmas season is coming, we see that how long the people were waiting in anticipation for their coming king. Us too, so much so, so much more so, are to be waiting in anticipation and seeking to find ways that the kingdom of heaven is breaking through here on earth. Pick up a shovel and join in. Technically, as the prophet Isaiah, pick up a, pick up a sword or a, a gun and turn it into a plow, right? And join in. Thank you.
I don't need him anymore. Last passage. So what do we do? How do we go from here with these a perspective shift, seeing through the lens of Jesus? My favorite passage, one of my favorite passages in Scripture, and I think sum this up, uh, Hebrews 12, verse 1. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, that we've seen God work throughout human history so far, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, our, our living hope, right, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding the shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. And then jump over to verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 12. The writer concludes of Hebrews, he says, Therefore, or she, uh, we don't know. Verse 12, Therefore, Jesus also suffered outside the city gate in order to sanctify the people by his own blood. Now, city gate is literally outside the community, outside of safety, outside of the country, outside of the, the nation state that they are a part of, outside of their culture, saying, Jesus bore that shame. He lost all that protection. He went and suffered outside the city gate. Why? To sanctify us. And so what does that mean for us? Verse 13, he says, let us then go to him, follow him outside the city gate, outside the camp, and we too are to bear that potential abuse that he endured. Why? For here in Tusk, in Ohio, in the United States, for here we have no lasting city or state or country. But we are looking for the city that is to come. Here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. We seek the city that is to come, the kingdom of God. What's a practice from the way of Jesus that helps us reorient to be reminded of, to remember, to shift our thinking, to give us new eyes to see, to, to, to recalibrate our perspective as followers of Jesus. Um, the biggest one, I, I think, is meditation. We've talked about meditation before, but I do think finding a scripture passage, and I think this Hebrews passage is a great passage that you could utilize. I think Philippians 2, 5 through 11 is another one to spend time this week meditating on. And that means just sitting with that passage, just you and that passage. Maybe it's writing it out for me. I like to write it out. I like to circle things. I like to see similarities. But I just like to sit with it. Seeing the way of Jesus more and more. Seeing how it changes literally everything. It confronts literally everything. Jesus doesn't just confront the things we don't like about other people. First and foremost, see the log in your own eye. Let him show you the log in your own eye. So you can, he can take that out and give you a clear perspective on life uh, in following him, life in the kingdom. I'm going to invite the band up and uh, we'll pray. Um, as, we, uh, as they come up, just want to introduce, remind us where we're, uh, the time we're going into. We do four things in this time. I encourage you to prayerfully reflect 
on perhaps what the Spirit was uh, speaking to you in this time. Uh, I encourage you to confess, heart, heartfelt confession, if there's anything that you think or that the Spirit brings to mind that you, um, that Jesus died for, for you this week. And, uh, or maybe it's something you've been holding on to, or, or you haven't even, you've had a log in your own eye and you haven't seen it, but the Spirit's helping you see it. I encourage you to spend some time confessing. Uh, and then uh, joyfully respond in, yeah, sacrificial giving, but also in singing. And we have two ways that, we are, that you're able to give here. Just a reminder, we have the baskets in the front and back, and then we use our Venmo account. But in singing, I encourage us again, sing. Uh, God is worthy of our praise. And again, if, like we say, if, if you just don't have the voice to sing today, not because of a cold, uh, but because um, your heart or your mind is just not there, I encourage you to then just be prayerfully asking God to, to encourage you by the singing of the saints around you. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for giving us new eyes opening the eyes of our heart to see you, Jesus, opening the ears of our heart to hear your words. We ask that you, Holy Spirit, would help us see the air in our way, to help us see uh, the ways that we still, uh, the lens that we still look through that is so much uh, in accordance with the way of the world and the way of our former flesh. Help us take off that. Help us put off that former self and help us put on Christ. Help us see through the lens of Jesus. Help us feel through the lens of Jesus. Help us think through the lens of Jesus. Help us live as the hands and feet of Jesus. We love you, Lord. We lift this in the name of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the LifeBridge podcast. For more information about our church, please visit lifebridgedover.org. There you'll be able to find out more about the church community, our ministries, ways to get involved, recommended resources, and to give. Be sure to subscribe to receive new episodes directly into your podcast feed. While we are glad that you're checking out our podcast feed, we believe that the New Testament teaches that church worship is to be experienced weekly, in person, within your local church community. Thus, we encourage you to either join us in person for Sunday morning worship or to find and commit to a local gospel-centered church community in your neighborhood. Thanks.